Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. And thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Courtney. To all, the, uh, all of our women here, I, w- I want to say that... Um, here you go, I'll trade you, Jed. <laughs> uh, you, you are such an important part of who Sunridge is. You are truly, as Genesis talks about uh, with Adam and Eve, our Azer Connecto. You are our partner warrior. And uh, whether you're married or, you know, or not, it doesn't matter. You are half of this church and well, probably more than half. And uh, we are so grateful for the contribution of decades of ministry and leadership and uh, mentoring, um, guidance for this church. I'm so grateful to all of you. If you're, if you're a guest today, my name's Britt. I'm uh, the lead pastor here and uh, I want to start off today by having you stand up again. Come on, we're getting our exercise, little PT. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a test right now, all right? I want to find out what you know about Moses. So I'm going to ask a question, and if you don't know the answer, I want you to sit down, okay? You with me? Yeah. All right, here's question number one. I'm going to put it up on the screen. What amount of manna were the Israelites to put aside in a jar for future generations to remember God's provision for them in the desert. Okay, everyone sit down. (laughs) Everyone sit down. I'm not going to do that to you because most of you just experienced what we call test anxiety, right? (laughs) And it was right here in church. As soon as I said the word test, you were starting to sweat, and here you were going to be public in, uh, you know, not knowing the answer. I wonder if... You're more from my generation if this brings back any nightmares from elementary school, like multiplication tables. Did you have the contest where you move through the class two times two, and the person, second person to give the answer had to sit down? Do you remember this? Such a hostile learning environment. (laughs) They don't do that anymore, do they? I don't know. Or there's another case where they They would bring you up in front of the whole classroom and have you work out the math problem in front of everybody. Remember that? That was great. (laughs) So, you know, the human purpose of a test is to measure what we already know. If we did the work, if you studied, if you're able to synthesize the information, did you memorize the critical points? What have you learned thus far already? But God's tests are different. God's tests are not designed to categorize us by who's smart and who's not or what you've learned so far. God's tests are a learning opportunity. They're a learning opportunity. When God tests people, it's not for the purpose of making people look dumb or smart or whether you get to promote or not. He doesn't line us up to recite Bible verses in front of everybody else in a contest. We're not required to take the FAT, the the faith aptitude test, to see if we can gain acceptance into our preferred neighborhood in heaven. 
And he's not trying to expose our weaknesses in our faith to our classmates in order to embarrass us into doing better the next time. God's tests instruct us, and they build our faith and our trust in him. His tests teach us something about him or ourselves or the world that we live in. His tests help us. They're not meant to embarrass us or to hurt us. Now, tests aren't bad. Let me just be equal here or whatever. You know, not everybody gets a trophy, and tests are good. They, they determine things for us. Um, they determine if we're going to remain in honors English. Thank you, Mrs. Dewhurst, for kicking me out of honors English in 11th grade. <laughs> so that I could go to typing instead, which was much more useful in college, I have to say. Or uh, they test us whether if we're going to be on the varsity or the JV. That's, that's all good. But most often, as we'll see today, God's tests are not designed to see if we measure up. God's tests are designed to instruct us. They are the lesson. And this morning, we're going to look at how God tests the Israelites as they begin their journey into the desert so that they can learn the valuable lessons that they need to learn in that day so that they can apply them in the future. And then as usual, we're going to bring that forward 3,500 years to see if there might be something for you and me to learn from their experiences so long ago. Now remember, if you've been with us, we're studying the life of Moses and the Israelites have crossed over the Sea of Reeds, so they're free from Egypt, but they're in the desert. And it would seem they're in the desert without all the essential things that you would need in the desert. After the song of, uh, by the sea in Exodus 15, which we talked about last week, they've traveled three days into the Sinai Desert. This is the topography that they, they are in. Now, if you are in this terrain, what is the main need you are thinking of? Water. They've traveled three days, Exodus says, without water or with whatever, with only the water that they could carry. So in verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Good question, right? Valid question. And then when they finally come upon water, it's undrinkable. So they must have gone from elation to despair very quickly. So Moses prays and God tells him to pick up a piece of wood and throw it in the water and it becomes fit to drink. And then we have the first time a test is mentioned in the life of Moses and the Israelites. In Exodus 15, 25, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them to put them to the test. Now here's a test or learning opportunity. It's actually two things. Verse 26, he said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So the first lesson or the first test is to listen carefully. Do you see that? Listen carefully, which is different than casual listening, uh, listening right? You know the difference. Casual lis listening is what we do when we're on a flight and they tell us how to put on a seatbelt, right? 
Maybe you, though, maybe beyond that, you've experienced that in your relationship with God. You were listening casually, not really paying attention, and then something happens, and you finally hear what he's been saying all along, because now God has your attention. And probably, I'm just like speculating because I've never been in this situation myself, you probably thought to yourself, you know, I wish I would have listened more carefully the first time, right? So what's the second part of the test? Let's look at it again in verse 26. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes. The second part is to do what is right in His eyes. The second part is to do it. So there, here, here it is. I listen carefully and I do it. You know, in, I don't know if I've mentioned to you guys before, but I used to be a fireman. And I know that everyone in public safety or in the military, uh, you know how assignments get made through the radio. They give you an assignment. You listen carefully to it. You even repeat it back. And then you go and do it. There's a rescue issue on the backside of the apartment complex. You're assigned rescue, rescue group. I want you to go uh, to the rear of the building and effect rescue. Okay, we have rescue, rear of the building. Then you go and do it. It's that simple. Now, I want you to notice that it's not listen and memorize. That could be important, right? It's not listen and talk, talk to others about it. That could be good, too. It's not listen and put it up on a meme on your social media, which may be a good idea as well. It's not listen and denigrate others with what you learned, which is not a good idea. It's not listen and then ignore it as you come up with your own way to do it. It's not hear God out and then choose the parts that you like and then get rid of the rest. It's not compare what God says to what your friends and your culture are telling you and then decide what you want to do. It's listen carefully and do it. This is so important to God in this point in the nation of Israel's uh, journey that he repeats it. He says it a different way. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees. So he says it one way, and then he says it the same thing, only differently. It's repetition. God is saying, I just want to make sure that you got this basic thing, and here's what I want you to learn. If you listen and do it, you will put yourself in a position for me to bless you. You will, you will live in a way that as a human being, I've designed you to live, and so you will flourish. It's a basic lesson but it's important to the Israelites. It is so important for them to do this. And then right after this, in verse 27, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. And the Israelites are like, whew, that was close. And God is like, see, I told you. So what's test number one? Here it is in your notes. Test number one is to pay attention to what God says and do it. Didn't Jesus teach this? In Matthew 7, 24, when he got to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine listens carefully 
and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built his house on the rock. Jesus said God wants us to hear his words and put them into practice. This is one of the the most important things that you and I can learn as Christians today. Because you can know all kinds of theology, you can memorize thousands of Bible verses, you can be super gifted at different things, but this is lesson number one. Pay attention to God and do it. So the next time, the next time you or I are in a place where it seems like our world is falling apart, the next time you don't know the next step, the next time you can't figure it out, the next time life gets difficult, God says, I want you to listen to me carefully and to do it. Now, if you're in the desert, after your water situation is solved, what is the next thing on your mind? Food, right? Now, is it possible that The Israelites went a month and a half without food. It is, but it's not likely. They probably brought some food with them, but they can only carry so much in an escape from the Egyptian army. So that's only going to sustain them for so long. You know, a former U.S. Army quartermaster general estimated that based on what Exodus says about the number of Israelites that were traveling could be, it was 600,000 men, we know, which means it could be two to three million people in all. Their daily needs to survive will be this. I'll put it up on the screen. 11 million gallons of water, 1,500 tons of food, and 4,000 tons of food or wood to cook the food. Is that mind-boggling? They just go, whoa, how, how can this happen? You know, that is nothing to God if he wants to intervene. A month and a half after having crossed the Sea of Reeds, they're hungry. How hungry are they? Exodus 16, 3, the Israelites said to them, that is to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Pretty hungry. (laughs) So some of you, you're here today, you're very familiar with this part of the story, right? I mean, we're we're about to talk about one of the most famous things, the most well-known things that God did in the book of Exodus. But if you're not, if you have no idea what's about to happen, I'm so excited that you're here. I'm going to blow your mind, or God is going to do it, okay? So God provides food for the Israelites in in two forms. He gives them a carbohydrate and a protein. I want you to see, in Exodus 16, 8, Moses said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Now, how did that happen? I'm glad you asked. Later in the day, Every, every afternoon, later in the day, quail will fall from the sky to feed them. And then secondly, in verse 13, and in the morning, there would be a layer of dew around the camp. Now, what is that all about? It's not loaves of Dave's super bread. In verse 14, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And you're like, what is it? Exactly. 
Verse 15, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Protein and carbohydrate. Do you know, maybe your Bible says manna. Do you know that that literally means what is it? Yeah, that's what they, we say manna fell from this, you know, they collect it. It's like, we're saying, what is it? What do we call this stuff? I don't know. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of debunks all the theories that have been uh, proposed over generations about all the, to, to come up with natural explanations for how this happened. You know, some people have uh, proposed that it was actually insect secretions which is not exactly a Pop-Tart in the morning, right? Uh, it could be sap from trees or a form of lichen that formed, but they would have been familiar with all of those natural explanations. But their response was, what is it? And Exodus says it was like thin flakes that covered the ground in the morning like frost, and they crushed it and made it into bread or loaves, or raw it had like a sweet, bready taste. So God provides for the Israelites in a really innovative and miraculous way. Think about it. They needed directions. God directs them with a cloud and fire. They need water. They travel, and they can utilize what's there. They don't need to carry large vessels of water. Jesus turned water into wine, but Moses turned bad water into good. And later, he strikes a rock to make the water come through. And then with food, again, not hauling around wagons and wagons of food or leading a big cattle herd like we know in this country, uh, you know, across the nation, you know, and a few cows not making it all the way so that Cookie could, you know, make a few steaks for the cowboys. Um, they have meat from flocks of birds, and they have bread that they gather in the morning. And it's really amazing. But you know, that's not the point. This test isn't about trusting God for food and water. And even though the Israelites have food and water and guidance through the desert to get to the land that God has for them, God wants them to learn to trust his words. 16.4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you and the people to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. They have some specific instructions of how to gather and to handle this manna, or what is it? Here, here's, the, here's the instructions. I've just kind of like summarized them all. Number one, collect it first thing in the morning. Collect only what you or your family need. Bake it like bread or boil it. Don't store it up. Save manna would go bad in a day, except on the Sabbath. There would be no manna or quail on the Sabbath. The day before Sabbath, they were to collect twice as much and prepare it so they could have a day, a day of rest, and it wouldn't spoil. Those are the instructions. Can you understand those? Everyone got that? You guys with me? Okay, slap your neighbor just to make sure that, okay. How did the Israelites do on this? Verse 20, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Now, are you surprised that they did that? 
Me neither. Only on the day before Sabbath were they to collect extra. Verse 26, six days you're to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. But do you think they listened? Verse 27, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Is this funny to you? <laughs> Have you ever given really simple instructions to somebody, and then they went out, and they totally disregarded what you just told them and didn't do it? I mean, have you ever said, son, the only thing, while we're, while we're gone, my, while your mom and dad are gone, the only thing we ask is don't have anybody over to the house. <laughs> and then later you found out all of Temecula Valley High School was at your house, your neighbors told you. All I need you to do before you go and play is put your toys back in the toy box. Text me when you get there. Go have fun. Be home by 11. So what is this next test or lesson for the Israelites? Test number two, then, is follow God's instructions. Follow God's instructions. Now, I want to say, this is not an earn it thing. Notice that God saved every one of the Israelites, every one of them who crossed the sea were rescued. And he gave water and food to everyone. But it's obviously not an automatic thing that just because God rescues someone, that they will follow his instructions. One of the things that we see as we travel with our spiritual ancestors through Exodus is that we're still pretty much the same we still have a difficult time following God's instructions. 3,500 years of repetition, and we're still there. Sometimes as Christians, I feel like we're a dad putting together a bike for his kid for Christmas. Open box. Take out all the parts. Pick up instructions. Throw them in the trash. Put the bike together several times because we didn't follow the instructions. So let's talk about what that might mean for us today. You, you might be saying, you know, Britt, I really don't get it. This is going to be a real stretch for you as my pastor. What in the world does this have to do with me living in the Temecula Valley in 2023? Because, Britt, we're not waiting on manna and quail to fall from heaven. We have canes, and you could get some delicious chicken there and a nice piece of Texas toast, which is really like manna from heaven, right? And you know, it doesn't stink the next day. Actually, if you throw in the air fryer, it's amazing. And you don't look like Moses. Maybe you're as old as he is. True. But are we not still learning the same fundamental lessons that we need to pay attention to God and do it and follow his instructions. I mean, God has still given us the same test today, you guys. You're hitting a rough time in your marriage. You're fighting a lot. Isn't it easy in that moment to go, you know what, this is baloney. I'm not going to like 
I'm not going to stick through this. This is too hard. Isn't it becoming more and more difficult as your faith clashes with culture to go, you know, I just don't think that applies anymore. Yeah, I mean, you don't understand, Britt. I know you're a pastor, so you don't totally get it, but you can't, we can't do that anymore. The world is different. So the way we did things before, we can't do them like that anymore. And are you finding it easier and easier to allow your own preferences to direct your life? Are you real stickler about obedience, about some things, and not so much for others? Are you a real stickler about some people being held accountable to the values of Christian faith and not others because they're on your side? Are you finding a lot of things to do besides investing in your spiritual life? What about your spending habits? What about how you treat people? How you doing? You know what God said during this time of testing in the life of the Israelites? It's in verse uh, 28. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Do you ever hear that little small voice in your head? It's like, how long, Britt, will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? I hate to tell you, but if you're a Christian, these tests are going to come up over and over in your life because God wants to grow us. He wants us to be like Jesus, and growth only happens through stretching and difficulty, and challenge, tests, because God tests us to grow us. And again, the test isn't designed to make us look stupid, to make us feel like we can't come to church today, that you have to hide your life. This is not about your salvation. It's not a quid pro quo with God. You do this, and like, I'll work everything out for you. God tests those that he has saved because he wants us to learn how to follow him. And God is going to continue to test us because often we need a tune-up. And often God is teaching us something today that is preparing us for something in our future. But you know, there's another word that comes up often in this passage. We are looking at Exodus 15 through 17 here roughly. And it comes up twice as many times. Do you know what that word is? Let's see. Chapter 15. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then in chapter 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Verse 7, he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Verse 8, he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are, who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And in verse 12, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Then in chapter 17, verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. So what's the word? 
grumbling, writes, Did you know that from Exodus 15.22 to 17.7, tests are mentioned four times, and grumbling is mentioned nine times? Isn't grumbling a great word? It's better than complain or whine or be negative. To grumble means to utter words indistinctly with a low voice. It's to mutter. I was asking some people before church today, I'm going to like take a little trip back to the 60s. I told you I could have lived in Moses' day. There was a cartoon character that used to mutter under their breath, and you couldn't understand what they were saying. They would, it would be like, snag a And you really, you, like I said, you didn't know what they were saying. Saying, it's like, I think, it, was it Snagglepuss? Snagglepuss. Exit, stage left. Remember that? Let me give you some observations about grumbling. First of all, grumblers focus on what they don't have rather than what they do. Grumblers gripe about what they don't have. I get it. The Israelites were worried about their situation, but look at what God had done for them in their past, and yet they had totally forgot it. And even when they get what they wanted, they grumble about how it didn't come in their timing or it didn't come in their preferred fashion. The Israelites wanted food and got it in a miraculous way, but you'll see pretty soon they're grumbling because they're tired of the same old thing every day. Grumbling is also habit-forming. Once you start grumbling, pretty soon you're grumbling about everything. Be honest. Don't you know, people, that that's just what they do? They're just grumbly all the time. It's like they have a grumble addiction or it's a tick, you know? It's like every, everything that comes out of their mouth is like a snag of fries. Whatever you're talking about. The Israelites grumble a lot, you'll see, because it's habit for me. Grumblers' gripes are always aimed at someone else. A grumbler, grumbler never grumbles about themselves. The Israelites grumbled about Moses and Aaron. They blamed them. Yeah, you know Moses and Aaron. They don't know what they're doing. Why, if I was leading the Israelites today, I'd blah, 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 blah. snag a fries. It's always about the bad boss, not their performance. Grumblers always seem to know a lot about something that they never did. You'll never hear a grumbler say, you know, I've just really grown sick and tired of my whiny, negative, fault-finding self. (laughs) They'll just never say that. It will always be someone else that is keeping them from the goals that they have in life. Grumbling is contagious. If you spend a lot of time With a grumbler, it won't be long before you're grumbling too. You're like, you're fine. You're going along, happy. And then you're around a grumbler and pretty soon you're like, yeah. Yeah, why why aren't they doing that? And why did they do that to us? And eventually grumbling turns to quarreling. Verse 2, so they quarreled with Moses. First they're grumbling. Now they're quarreling. Give us water to drink. It's like grumbling is a gateway drug. (laughs) They still have not learned that they're in a desert with no food or water, and God is so far above their circumstances that he's handling it. 
so they grumble. But God uses their grumbling as an occasion not to punish His people, but to teach them something about Himself. And I love how Moses does this. Moses, Moses turns their attention toward God. He says, why do you put the Lord to the test? He tells them, you're grumbling about God. I'm not the problem. And they were like, oh, yeah, is that what we're doing? We'll change. No. Because grumblers often don't take the hint. So, this is for all the grumblers out there. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church of Philippi 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And then he goes on to explain why they should do things without grumbling, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul says that if we do things without grumbling or arguing, we will become blameless and pure. In other words, we will become who God meant us to be. We will grow. You will shine like a light, like stars. Stars shine in the darkness. You will become the people that I meant you to become. But none of that will happen for the grumbler. Because grumbling will block your personal growth. You cannot grumble and grow at the same time. It's going back away, but uh, one of the most formative uh, leadership books I ever read was a really simple book by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anybody read that? I know it's going back a ways. Um, and in that book, I'll never forget it. I've used it so many times throughout my career in applying to myself and helping others. He talks about the circle of concern and your circle of influence. Anybody with me on this? There's, there's, he draws two circles. There's the circle of concern. It's a small circle. And these are the things that uh, you have no control over, but they are concerning to you. They're your worries. And there, then there's the circle of influence. It's a much bigger circle of things that you can actually do something about. And Covey says that we spend most of our time fretting over our circle of concern, those things for which we can do nothing. And the more that we do that, instead of focusing on our circle of influence, our circle of influence shrinks because we're so focused on, the, on these things that we can do nothing about. And so all that grumbling and worry keeps us from going to the next level, keeps us from becoming who God has made us to be. And all these things that had happened to the Israelites, God was using to grow them, to build them up, to do something in them, to have His light shine through them, and they were missing it. There's another, another book in your Bible uh, reflects upon this moment in uh, the life of the Israelites. It's in Deuteronomy 8.15. He, that is God, led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought, 
He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. God brought these tests in the midst of all of these challenges and struggles so that in the end, it will go well with you. In other words, I have an intention in this. I will, you will, I will allow you or put you into this situation, and I will show up in ways you've never imagined. And if you pay attention and do it, I will grow you. I will grow you through those tests. It will go well with you. Now, I'm going to ask the band to come up, and most of you know that uh, I like to have a big idea with every message. Um, uh, the main thing I want you to remember, and maybe I've so habituated you to that that um, you've been waiting for it to appear, because uh, I usually put that big idea in the beginning, but today I saved it for the end, and here it is. Here's the big idea I want you to walk away with. Tests are an opportunity for you to grow or grumble. That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? So, like, what I'm challenging you to do and myself is to rethink things that challenge us, that cause us struggles, discomfort, or pain, that we're in a place of uncertainty, because they are opportunities for God to grow us if we choose to grow through it rather than to complain about it. So just think about your struggles that you're having right now, your financial challenges, your career uh, the disappointments that you're having, the transitions you've, you're having to go through, the disruptions that have happened in your life, the people that have disappointed you, the things that you're worried about. There are opportunities for you to grow, not grumble. You know, paying attention to God and following His instructions begins with trusting Him, and that's what Jesus said when he, he actually was referring to this time in the Israel, Israelite's life when he said this in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And again, like his hearers would have been drawn back to this part of their, of their people's history. And what he's saying is, we hunger and thirst for things, but... God wants us to trust him. And it, it begins with simple belief. You see that? If, but if you believe in me, and that's what God wants us to do. For some of us, it's like you believe in God for a really long time. You're a Christian. You're, you're trying to grow. You're in church. You know, you're, you're in a small group. You're serving. It's like God wants us to constantly believe in him, to know that he, he has the truth. He has what will satisfy us, the things that we hunger and thirst for. And for some of you, you know, you're exploring Christianity, you're, you're on the edge, you're, maybe you're not interested at all, you're just getting a free lunch out of church today, I don't know what it is, but like you're here and you, you're hearing my voice. It's like the things that, that are in your life right now are opportunities to turn you toward belief in God. 
And God's not saying you have to earn his pleasure. You don't have to perform up to his standard. He's not giving you a test and going, okay, I'm going to see if you're worthy. None of us are worthy. What, he, what God desires from us is for us to meet him where he's trying to meet us. God's entered our world through his son, Jesus. Not because he's trying to avoid sinful people. God is engaged with broken people. And he's saying, it starts with belief. Wasn't that the problem for the Israelites? Whatever God told them, it's like, oh, I, I just don't know. That's, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I can follow through on that. He just kept saying, believe me. And some of you today, it's like, you really need to consider that. What, what do you believe in Jesus Christ? And can you confess that openly? You know what? We're not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand, but like maybe this is a moment for you in the situation you're in right now to go, you know, I see that next step for me is not to find my food or my water or to understand the whole thing out in front of me, but my step today is to believe in the Son of God. Would you think about that? Let me pray. God, um, this is something that it doesn't matter if you're young or old, educated or not. Um, it's just a challenge for us to simply believe you at your word so that we can pay attention, so that we can listen and, and carefully consider what you say and to take that next step doing it. For the people that are here today and watching online, God, I just ask that you would meet us at our point of that simple belief, whether we're Christians for 30 years or thinking about becoming a Christian, that we would see that it's your son Jesus that fills our every hunger and quenches all of our thirst. That we could believe you for what you say. Amen. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.